0: Welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music, or sometimes movies about music. I'm Chris Wade.
1: And I'm Molly O'Brien.
0: And Introducing, he's a rock and roll rooster facing a serious identity crisis in the face of an evil owl's plotting and saved by a cartoon transmogrified child. It's Don Bluth's 1992 animated feature, Rockadoodle. doodle But first, let's introduce our own guest. He's the lead singer, songwriter, and bassist for the band Eve Six. It's Max Collins. Welcome to the show, Max.
2: Hi, guys. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us on this journey.
0: Yes, thanks for joining us and suggesting this topic. So a little explanation of how we got here. Uh, Longtime listeners of the show will know that we usually do like an artist's memoir Or something uh, each episode to uh, discuss the music and the musician. Uh, But (laughs) in a, I guess, typical thing on Twitter, um, Max was going off through the E6 account and uh, somebody tagged me in with the classic Twitter rejoinder, uh, go on Chapo. Uh, Max politely deferred from Chapo, but kind of offhandedly said, but if you want to do three hours on the movie Rockadoodle, I'd be down. Which activated something deep inside me because rock doodle is a movie that I probably watched 200 times when I was between the ages of five and eight years old and have never heard anybody mention in the real world since then. And so I was immediately down to do this on this podcast. So I guess I'll start by just saying what we usually do. What's your experience with the property or music or musician before? Max, what made you think about rock doodle
2: Well... I have uh two daughters, seven and four and um we 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 try to watch a movie um every night you know we do do a little have a little routine and you know kind of got burnt out on all of the standard fare uh you know the stuff that that disney has to has to offer and um my girlfriend um actually suggested that we that we watch some Don Bluth stuff so we started I think with All Dogs Go to Heaven mm-hmm. um Troll is it Troll in Central Park
0: yeah I think Troll, Troll in Central Park
2: Troll in Central Park and then um and then we got to rock and uh yeah it's uh it's it's so so strange and um Kind of psychedelic, kind of disturbing. Uh, really hard for me to follow <laughs> plot. <laughs> Same. Yeah, we'll get Agreed. into the Plot a little bit after this. Yeah, like I, I, I I'd seen it a couple times <clears throat> with my kids, and then um, watched it again, kind of with purpose, knowing that that we were going to be doing this. And I was like, oh, try to you know see what you can glean about you know <clears throat> things you may have missed or whatever. And nothing really like I, I just, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, it's just, it's, it's an experiential, uh, film and it just kind of, uh, I'm just kind of at its, at its whims. And it's so like, I, I, I did have a couple moments where I wondered if it was going to be like the stuff of nightmares for my kids, because <laughs> especially the C the scene where the Duke, um, is first introduced and is talking about cannibalizing a little boy <laughs> and, and throws his uh, monocle at him and, and his room is in total disarray. Cause like, it's just been ravaged by weather. And, uh and it, and it looks, it's like, it's pretty scary. Like it's a pretty scary, scary image. And uh, yeah, he's not, you know, pulling any punches. I mean, The the owl says, "I'm going to eat you." You know, (laughs) you put your finger in my eye. I'm going to consume you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll speak to. I guess I'm maybe the only person here who actually consumed this as a child, and there was something about it that was simultaneously very disturbing, but also very enchanting. And I think that that combination is what made me kind of obsessed about it because it is genuinely scary. And uh, I mean, we'll, we'll go through the plot in a minute, but the the central thing that is especially weird about this movie in its time and in this place of late 80s or 80s and 90s cartoon movies is the plot device that it starts as an animated film and then you cut to real humans reading it as a storybook and then the human child that's reading it gets transformed into a cartoon by the villain the the duke of owls
2: and 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 into a cartoon of an anthropomorphized cat, yeah. not of an animated child, which made the first time I watched it that I was like, wait, uh, who's who? Yeah.
0: And I think yeah. that there was something about that idea of a being a human boy transformed by magic into a cartoon cat that I found incredibly disturbing, but alluring. Like I, I both feared yeah. that happening to me and wanted it to happen to me. Uh, Absolutely, and and that was the draw in of the uh, of the movie that, and one of the essential like weirdnesses of this. But but we can go on on that in a second. Uh, Molly, this was your first time watching it over the weekend.
1: This was my first time watching it. I definitely like let it wash over me because it's nineteen ninety two, so it was like slight when it came out. Was it straight to video or did it have any kind of like theatrical? This had a
0: theatrical release, but I remember watching it exclusively on VHS.
1: Yeah, I find like movies, especially from, you know, when we grew up, like kids' movies are so, you know, you have that feeling, I guess, Chrissy, you're talking about, where like you weren't sure whether you made up a movie in your head or if it was real because you didn't have any kind of like networked experience as a kid. Like everything kind of felt like it was maybe just in your brain. So I totally understand the vibe of this movie as that because I had my own. Versions of those, but yeah, I just watched it this weekend, and it, it was it was a, a trip, I will say
2: I, I do have memory of seeing it a, as a kid, but only I only remember those first like few minutes uh, mm. it, it's weird I, I remember the dog trying to tie his shoes, and I remember <laughs> Santa Claire doing his first uh, you know the first song and stuff. Um, the music's really good. I was gonna like mm-hmm. do you know who did. I meant to look that up actually. Uh Who who did who actually did the, the vocal performance? Uh,
0: I can look that up right now while we're going through. Oh, who did the vocal performance? It's Glenn Campbell.
2: Cockadoo, what a day. The sun is shining brightly. Cockadoo, sunny day. Down here on the farm. Cockadoo, stay away. You big old little rain cloud, or I'll cry loud with this voice of mine. No way. Well, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Glenn Campbell is the singer. So just to get everyone who might be listening situated with the plot, Rockadoodle is the story of a rock and roll rooster named Chanticleer who is Elvis. It's like a straight one-to-one Elvis performance. And he, his deal is, is that he sings every morning in the barnyard to raise the sun. But one day, a goon sent by the Duke of Owls who is played by um, Christopher Plummer is sent to disrupt his singing causing the sun to rise anyway and giving him a Chanticleer crisis of confidence that his singing doesn't actually bring up the sun, causing him to leave the barnyard in shame to go to quote the city where he becomes like a Vegas style floor show performer as Elvis. So that's his name is the King. The King. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's the setup and then it cuts to the, the human people, the human world where they're reading this as a story, uh, the human world is undergoing a torrential downpour and their farm is being flooded. So all the parents have to leave the house to go put like sandbags in front of the levee so their house doesn't wash away, which is also kind of like terrifying in its own right. It was like, intense. I, yeah.
2: As is how quickly uh, the other farm animals who love Chanticleer and, 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 and it, really, it really seems like, you know, it really seemed like there were some real friendships there. And then, as soon as as may, you know, they found out maybe his singing wasn't bringing up the sun, it was just derision and mockery, and you know, I mean, he was like he was literally laughed out of town.
0: Fake friends. They he, turn was on him yes. he was canceled. Yes,
1: yes. he was canceled at he the was farm. Canceled.
0: It's awful. Yeah. So, as their house, as the real humans' house is being flooded away, a tree a terrifying tree branch crashes through the window of the young boy, Edmund, who's being read this story of Chanticleer, and the animated evil Duke of Owls comes through and basically assaults this child and magically turns (laughs) him into a
1: cat. I hate when that happens. I hate when an owl, a cartoon owl, turns him into a cat. Uh, A cartoon cat. Sucks.
0: And this is played in the movie as if it is is actually happening, and he is trans transported and transmogrified into a cartoon into the cartoon world of the barnyard where he meets the barnyard protagonists uh, we have uh, Pateau, who is a droopy basset hound uh, who can't tie his shoes that's his main character arc over the course of the movie is learning to tie his shoes uh, yeah. we have uh, snipes the cowardly magpie and peepers the brave field mouse <laughs> and they collect this this cat boy decide to go off to the city to rescue to return Chanticleer uh to bring him back to the barnyard so he can raise sing raise the sun again and drive away the evil owls who love the darkness
2: right right and they only care they only care about bringing him back till after again they've they've realized that that there are some consequences to his leaving um they don't really miss Chanticleer the man
1: <laughs> yeah they, that they, is true isn't it yeah they're not like oh man he was like a cool guy it was like nice because he's he's kind of he's not the I my assessment actually at the end of the movie was like oh oh Chanticleer's like a he's like a himbo he's like a himbo rooster yeah like he's like yeah, kind of dumb big,
2: big, big dummy yeah yeah
1: but he's like nice enough I don't know but yeah they're mostly just like we would prefer our farm to not flood so let's get this guy yeah back. he
2: did he did seem a little little arrogant maybe in the beginning during that that first performance
0: so I'm kind of like buzzing through this first set because I think this movie this first act set up because I think this movie really starts to cook when they get to the city but I do also want to point out the one scene as they're like rowing to the city in a steamer trunk across a like surging river and get locked inside of it and uh, one of the the magpie is like anxiously because he has a fear of tight spaces poking at the side of the trunk, causing it to flood. Uh, an element from these Don Bluth movies that I think really stands out is that there is so much like actual peril in them. And I think it yeah. makes it really unsettling and kind of terrifying.
2: That's also though, like that scene stokes my childlike sense of wonder m- more than maybe any other like. And my kids too, watching it with them, it's like, that also looks, it's harrowing, but it also looks fun to be on this little, you know, makeshift boat with your buddies, like barreling down the wash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: The thing that I clocked from that scene, you know, I was, I was trying to like put myself in the, the shoes of the chi- my my inner child, the child I once was. And I like yeah. even the idea that that magpie is like freaking out in there and he's like, I'm claustrophobic. I'm like, yeah, if I were a kid, I wouldn't have ever heard the word claustrophobic before. Probably like, do, you yeah. know, when you like first encounter things in media and you're like, OK, that's the thing, I guess. Uh, I yeah, feel there's like also- there's lots of educational moments like that.
2: There are, and isn't there? Isn't the Duke's henchman? Um, he misspeaks similarly to um, the way Little Carmine does. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, Which is also a little, you know, you know, joke like jokes for the parents thrown in, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of a poorly
0: defined like comedic game, but yeah, it is. He's got this yeah. little flying henchman around who's this tiny little owl. Who just exclaims exclusively like three syllable a words when he's uh, you know either doing something or in distress? So he'll he'll just be flying around going like avaricious, <laughs> advantageous, acrimonious. Yeah, <laughs> it's never really explained why he only knows a words. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they get to the city, and y- this is the part where, that I really want to dive into because this movie is also. For the target audience here, which I, I guess would probably be like four to seven year olds, is is it's a showbiz movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they get to the city and they find that Chanticleer has become a big star, but it's immediately set up that he is under a predatory management situation.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's a hostage. Yes. Yeah, I think my my first post about uh the movie was uh Rockadoodle is a great film about the music industry. Mm.
0: Yes. It's a yeah. it's a great like kids first music industry because it starts with this probably one of the best animated sequences in the movie where it it shows what his sh- show is like and it's a great like 50s stage show where he's singing and doing like a very Elvisy moves on top of a giant rotating record platter uh, in yeah. this gorgeous theater with the the backup dancers and costumes and stuff
3: Let me be your rooster and let me roost with you let me be your rooster, let me hear your sweet voice coo. Girl, you've thrown me for a loop. Well, you're the number one chick in this chicken coop. I wanna rock, rock, a doom, and you,
0: you get the sense that rock he rock is a star in the vein of, of, you know, Elvis at the height of his fad faddom And then it like immediately cuts to him in the office with his fox manager, Pinky. Uh yeah. Pinky the Fox, who is very obviously set up to be grifting him, to be using him, to be manipulating him, to just do uh Pinky's Fox bidding uh, or, or, or managerial bidding.
2: Yeah. 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 It seems like Santa has got it all at, 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 at first look. And then it's like, uh, yeah, no, not, not so much. He has no autonomy whatsoever. He's, you know, he's, he's just, uh, you know, he's trapped here and he's got a, you gotta put on his show for the man.
0: Yeah. So the the gang, the, the the kid gang tries to uh you know get to him to tell him that he's needed back at the farm, uh, which leads to one of my favorite one off gags in this movie. And Molly, I think you really like this, uh, which is that they are uh brushed away by the gang of frog bouncers.
1: Oh yes, who are like singing like bounce, 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 bounce. We're all bouncing, <laughs> like you can't come in here. I can't remember exactly yeah, how it goes, uh, but I was I I was very into that
2: scene. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't even I didn't even log that part. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: they do have a little song. That's the other the funny thing about the music in this movie, as opposed to like the the classic Disney movies of this era where it's like if it's a song, it's a full on song. Uh yeah. and in this they like Chanticleer has like two or three big song numbers, but like the yeah. owls, the frogs, a few other people have songs where they sing like two lines of a song and then they're like, no, that's enough.
2: Well, that's something I've noticed about this movie and other Bluth movies too is, um, I mean, in, in, in Disney movies or whatever. Yeah. The lyric is always, uh, you know, literal and stuff, but, uh, there aren't any artful moments to any of the words in these songs. They're like very much just, this is what's this is exactly what's happening right now. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of them don't even uh uh go far enough to have like a full rhyme. You know, they'll yeah. be, they'll just be like we are owls flying around. We are going to eat you.
1: <laughs> there was there's was yeah. kind of like a I feel like it wasn't fully fleshed out, but the idea that also the the main owl dude that ca- what's his name? The Count? The, the Count Duke. of the Duke, uh, that he wasn't, he didn't like rock music because that was the music that uh, Chanticleer used to bring the sun up. And the all the owls kind of sang in this, like, you know, he, he plays his organ, which marks the, the second instance of like evil guy playing organ that I've seen recently in film after... Um, uh oh god! What's the name of the guy with all the tentacles and pirates? Davy Caribbean? Jones. Da- Davy Jones also plays an evil organ. I think that's a great bit. Yeah. But like this sort of maybe like classical versus rock music thing is like kind of a thing, but not not really. But I clocked it somewhat.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I see that.
0: Uh, so they they continue trying to get closer to Chanticleer. Oh, and here's the the I guess the final element of this is that Pinky to entice Chanticleer to remain being a star. Deploys his like basically pimps out a sexy female pheasant uh, (laughs) by the uh, (laughs) what what is her name Blondie Blondie the pheasant to pretend to be uh, Chanticleer's boy uh, girlfriend in order to to lure him into the lifestyle uh, in a. Uh, a, a classic, I guess, honeypot situation, mm-hmm. <laughs> but unfortunately, Goldie genuinely falls in love with Chanticleer, and, and I believe conspire—if I remember correctly—conspires with the uh, the, the farmyard animals to help get their message to him.
1: This is where but, I sort of personally lost the plot of it. Where I'm kind of like, "Yeah, we got to get him out of Vegas." I'm not really sure who, like, who's doing what or why, but like, let's let's get this guy out of here.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I only really remember the the narration bit where um, the voice is telling you, you know, that what 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 the plot, what the evil plot depends on is uh, what's her name, the Goldie, the buxom- Goldie, not not actually falling in love for Sean de Claire, but that's
0: <laughs> but then it's like the next scene, she's like, oh
1: no, I actually really do love yeah. him.
0: Yeah. Uh, to be to be clear, this movie is seventy minutes long, so it, it moves pretty quickly.
1: Honestly, the perfect length. Yeah. I, I think you you gotta prove if you want to make a movie, like you gotta have a really good reason to go past ninety. Uh, so seventy is like I, I'm chilling.
2: Yeah, and certainly a movie uh, that's that's targeted toward kids because right. Uh, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're gonna start. They're gonna start logging off pretty quick. If right. Right not giving them content. Let me just
0: plow through the end of this because then I want to just talk global uh, thoughts about this film. Uh, There's pretty much like a, the last like 20 minutes of this movie are one extended action sequence where they're trying to rescue him from being locked in his trailer by Pinky and they're on a movie set, which I thought is an interesting thing to uh, immediately establish that he's not just a music star, but also he's doing the film thing. It's like mapping all the Elvis stuff
2: on his- Elvis yeah. yeah.
0: There's a car chase, a limo chase that turns into a helicopter chase. They get him back to the farm. Uh the Duke of Owls uh transforms into a like s- a humongous, like 80-foot-tall uh monster saying that he uh will, you know, eat everyone because the darkness is forever. And that is when Chanticleer regains his confidence, sings his rocking song, <laughs> the sun comes back, all is saved, and Edmund the cat boy wakes back up revealing it had all been a dream while his family fixed the, uh, the, the, the levy or was it? Right. Right.
1: I can't believe he didn't really Ah. turn into a cat. I'm shocked. (laughs) 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 Can you imagine how horrifying it would be for real? So one thing, so now
0: that we've kind of like set up what this movie is about, I want to dig into a few aspects. And, and the first thing that kind of comes to me is that there's something about, and you've been watching the Don Bluth movies, that there is there's they're wacky and they're silly, but there is a darkness to the Don Bluth movies. That's not present in a lot of other animated films. I wonder Max, if you maybe have been noticing that as you've been going through uh, a bunch of movies with your kids.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. He doesn't uh, abide by the same uh, tropes, even though, yeah, you know, it's an animated film for, for kids. They're, you know, they're, There are those elements, but he does kind of steer into the dreamscape. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, and that's what's that's what's interesting about his movies, I think, is the fact that, you know, it's like we're all so familiar with um, with the Disney formula now. And uh, yeah, he's a bit of a bit of an iconoclast.
0: Yeah, I also think especially if you're watching a lot of Disney movies, which are very meticulously plotted a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And, and I think very like take great pains to be very like clear with what is happening from one step to another, that these movies ha- like lack that in a certain way where you just kind of yeah. like drift from one scene to another and maybe a more like Looney Tunes way.
2: Um, right. And no, and that, but there's something appealing in that too. It's like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like the in the, the way that a, that a dream is is confusing and more alluring for it, you know. Mm, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's sort of, and I don't even know if it's purposeful. Maybe he is in his mind's trying to do this, you know, uh, totally perfectly crafted thing, and is just <laughs> and is just sort of sort of missing. But but the effect, the effect is uh, pleasant.
0: Yeah, and then also just the stuff in the city, I feel. You you see so very little of it because it's really only like three or four scenes, but there's something about the city and the Vegas quality of it and his like rock performances that makes me, it makes me want to know more about what this world is like and how it works and how music works in this world. Like who are Chanticleer's fans? You know,
1: yeah, a bunch of birds. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, what do they do for work? That, I mean, that was <laughs> not to like dig too far into it, but like, you start at the farm where, like, for, for better or worse, all these animals have jobs, kind of. Especially, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to Clear definitely does, and then you go to Vegas, which is like you know, kind of a, a pleasure dome. And it's like all these people who have like d- doing the dinner in a show thing to see Chanticleer. I'm like, what do you do all day? Cause it's still animals. It's not like a Bojack horseman. Like some of these people are people type of thing. But that, yeah, that again, uh, that is the like the dream like quality where it's like the, the less sense it makes kind of the more you can let it go in your
2: mind of just being like, yeah, yeah
1: I don't know. Yeah. It's a bunch of birds seeing dinner theater. Whatever. Yeah, I know what you
2: mean too about like, uh, I remember as a kid too, I was always more, more curious about the seedy underbelly stuff. Like in all dogs go to heaven. There's some of that too. You know, there's dogs are smoking cigarettes and stuff. You're like, yeah, you know, it kind of, uh, sparks your, your curiosity about some of that stuff, but they always just sort of, briefly go there yeah
1: even the first um the like introduction to Vegas how they show it and it's like the sort of like soft dissolves of all the like neon signs and then you see Chanticleer and like that's clearly referencing like what you probably as a kid haven't seen yet which is like the real like cinematic version of Vegas and they're nodding to it and it you it has that vibe but like it's it's for babies it's so weird I love it
0: there's another element to that that I was noticing and I I couldn't quite tell if this was just like an animation error because of, I don't know, budget or something, Mm -hmm. but there's a real lack of size consistency in the animals (laughs) and in the city. Like it's like clearly everything in this world when it's animated is animals. So everything is for animals, but occasionally they'll do stuff like they'll go to his like Chanticleer's trailer, but be hiding under other trailers as if it was a, human world size trailer and they were a cat Mm -hmm. size animal hiding under it
2: yeah i think i i think i felt that more than noticed it didn't articulate it to myself (laughs) that way but like uh now that you say it yeah yeah
1: the the, um uh at near the end when uh, the Duke is doing his last battle. And at one point it was before he even gets huge, but he's still like go- going at it with one of the birds or something. And you're like, how big is this owl? This owl is still like already <laughs> the size of a person in comparison to what like a chicken would be. It reminds right. me of early in quarantine. We had, we had seen it. Uh, it was one of the last movies we saw in theaters was live action cats, of course. And uh, mm-hmm. we watched it again early in quarantine and we were watching it with some friends on zoom. And then, it came up. We we're like, how big are these cats in comparison to what these rooms are? Cause it's like wildly inconsistent. And it ended with one of our friends. We were literally like, hold up a fork next to your cat. I want to see how big this fork is in comparison to your cat. Right. So same, same kind of deal. Um,
0: I guess the, uh, one other, the thing that I also want to talk about is the, the existence of rock and roll as kind of a mythological force in this movie. And I can't think, there are a few other children's animated movies that address music, the music industry like this. Um, I'm thinking of maybe like Cats Don't Dance, uh, but that's even like more old timey like jazz. Um, And in in this movie, Chanticleer's relationship with rock music is, is put as almost like a mythological level. Like he has a spiritual force of rock and roll in him that I thought was, I think was another one of the things that compelled me about this when I was very young. I I thought that that like rock as magic angle was was interesting, even if we don't actually like see tremendous amount of it.
2: Yeah, well, totally. And because it is, and it especially is when you're a kid before you have any conception of how it's like, you know, forged or composed. It's just magic. It just, you know, it just has this, <clears throat> transcendent quality and yeah so uh, i i think that's i think that's appropriate what what's
1: funny to me is that this is 1992 obviously we're in like full on grunge territory in the real world and right. yet i do that's, feel um, like all of the not all but a lot of the content made in like the early maybe like late 80s and early 90s was way more like old-fashioned in terms of like what rock and roll looked like like I'm remembering specifically uh I was a I was a full house watcher when I was a kid which was around the same time and like uh like the Beach Boys and Elvis were like the guys and it was like you know, the early 90s for actual Gen X people like wasn't a thing. And I don't know if that's just like the age of the people who are making the content and being like, no, 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 this is like wholesome rock and roll. Like this is rock and roll. That's like appropriate for kids, even though like we all know what happened to Elvis. Like
3: that that was like (laughs) still pretty
2: dark. That's interesting because I feel like I feel like now with with Disney movies and definitely Disney television, they're. They're doing their best to approximate sort of what <clears throat> like popular music is now. Everything sounds like Imagine Dragons in these Disney TV shows, uh-huh. um, and uh, and yeah, but like the tradition of music and movies like that is kind of anachronistic in a way that's 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 nice. I don't know, like yeah, feels- it's pleasant. Yeah did
1: you did you see either Trolls or Trolls Two, by any chance?
2: I I, I saw. Trolls. I haven't. I've seen bits of Trolls too. Those movies are like an assault on my senses. <laughs> I agree. I can't do it. Like, uh, and and I mean, I will. Like, I have sat down and watched them with my kids, but they're so they're almost hostile in in how just bright and loud they are.
0: I think that that is something that that kind of a it uh, fascinated us about them cuz Molly and I have watched both of the Trolls movies. Trolls 2 is interesting on the same level of like kids appreciation of music since the setup of that movie is that the trolls all exist in tribes that are defined by genres of music and the which
2: is itself a totally anachronistic concept. Yes, I mean exactly. I'm I'm Gen X, you know, millennial cusp or whatever. So <laughs> I mean when I was in high school it was you know you were sort of defined socially in in that way like i mean <clears throat> i like only listened to punk rock and if i or if i listened to anything else and enjoyed it i certainly wasn't gonna tell you tell you yeah <laughs> you know yeah.
0: yeah i mean that that is the funny thing and maybe like to synthesize these two ideas is like it's funny that music is uh in, in kids movies at least as molly was saying is either like defined by these Very, very old concept. Like, if you have rock and roll in in a kid's thing, it's like, I don't know, Like it's still like either the Elvis or very current, uh, like it sounds, you know, like current Imagine Dragon style pop rock. And this whole middle, very important chunk of rock music history, let's say 1980 to 2010, uh, doesn't ever get represented, maybe because it's like not, I don't know, as iconic or anything, or because it doesn't appear to animators or kids music as like as iconic or anything. I don't know. Could you ever imagine having like an animated parody of Nirvana in a, in a kid's movie or a kid's
2: show? No, And you know what? And like, now that you say it, I guess it makes sense that the Imagine Dragons aesthetic works here because, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, it's very Disney radio sort of as it is, you know, it's, uh, there's,
0: it's, it, there's something clean about it and also, I mean, I think this is something that we've talked about on RPOD pod before is there's so much fluidity between what like rock, pop, hip hop, uh, like EDM, like all those styles have such a fluidity between them right now that yeah. <clears throat> it, separating things out it, to to be like, no, this is the rock troll tribe and this is the EDM troll tribe. Is a right is a funny conceit for a movie because it's like it, like all these things because
2: they converge. I yeah. mean, it's like it's all all of those elements are bleeding into every other sort of genre uh, right now. So yeah, that is that's interesting.
1: Like, where does a uh, Bastille featuring Marshmallow factor into this <laughs> tribal? Is that EDM yeah, right? or is it
2: rock or is it a right, special, Yeah, good luck, of its own. good luck parsing that one out. <laughs> troll.
0: Which is especially funny because a Bastille featuring Marshmallow song is exactly what would be on the soundtrack of Trolls Two,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Yeah, um, we definitely had to play um, the girls, you know, like the original versions of like you know the Cindy Lauper song and and stuff like that. I'm <laughs> like, no, 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 these yeah, existed they, before. Yeah, I mean, it really does feel like did feel like sort of bad parenting to let them think that that that. Have that be the first <laughs> impression of some of those
1: songs. Yeah.
0: Well, maybe this is a good segue. Unless, unless we have. Well, actually, I do. Do have one more question for you about the the movie and the animation stuff. And this is something that Molly and I were talking about as we were like scrolling through YouTube and and some of our like Netflix and stuff and seeing the like vast majority of that kind of like rubbery Pixar or DreamWorks quality animation. You know, every where like every kids product kind of looks like the Boss Baby. Um. Yep. do your kids respond differently to things in this more gritty tra- especially the Bluth movies like grittier traditional animation style or does does my fear that boss baby <laughs> animation will break children's brains into not being able to process something like all dogs go to heaven hold true yeah. or are they into it
2: so it is Uh, it, it just depends on the movie I've noticed mm-hmm. like what what's the one? Let me ask you real quick. <laughs> oh, it's the crews The Cruze. It's yeah. like the worst example of that kind of animation. Like, I mean, it all kind of looks the same, but like that there are you know you can give them the most uh, you know high def you know up to date tech animation, <clears throat> and they'll they'll completely tune out after ten minutes if it, if there there aren't characters that they're interested in, which is very heartening. That Uh, that is heartening. Yeah. Uh,
0: What's your favorite animated movie you've you've been watching with them recently?
2: Um, We've been doing. I always say his name wrong. The Japanese animator Miyazaki. Miyazaki. Um, Howl's Moving Castle. Hell yeah! I can just like watch that over and over again, and do because they love it. And uh, I mean, they love them all. Like uh, Ponyo. Is that the name of it? Or Ponyo? We watched Ponyo during
0: quarantine. (laughs) Uh, we also I think especially Molly really enjoyed uh, Kiki's delivery service and and Ugh, my quiet. mine is uh, Porco Rosso. uh
2: Kiki's delivery service I think I'm remembering <clears throat> wait is is there is there a cat uh, transmographic whatever the word is <laughs> in that
3: <tour>? Yes
0: <laughs> there's a little cat voiced by uh, Phil Hartman in the American dub. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That one's great too. Basically,
1: um, you know, when when a, a young witch is like, I guess I'll just be like Uber Uber Eats or whatever, <laughs> like in yeah. before I get a real job, like let me just like, or I guess what's what's the thing where people do your um your your ta- a ta- she's like a, a witch task rabbit. Love that shit.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, it's great. I love all of those movies, but something about how how's moving castle is just God. It's so. That machine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, um, and he's such a strange character. Like, he's so, he's way more flawed than something approaching a protagonist is normally allowed to be in a kids' movie. He's like totally vain and he's a kind of a narcissist, but he's also good.
0: Uh, And I think stuff like that is the similar reasons that something like Rockadoodle would imprint more on me than any of you know i I love watching like the classic disney things like aladdin or something but there was something about rockadoodle was always so uh lodged in my brain but i think because it has we those genuine elements of weirdness to it that are not like the easy to to consume and process characters as as like you know as like aladdin and jasmine and jafar like
2: yes yes yeah it's it it's more indelible precisely because it makes less sense in a way like <clears throat> I, and I still feel that way. Uh, I've talked about this with other songwriter friends, actually I don't know if you guys are fountains of Wayne fans. I'm <clears throat> they're like uh, one of my favorite bands. And I'm, I've become friends with Chris <clears throat> and uh, he wrote a, a, an opinion piece that was, that was in the New York times. Like, five or eight years ago or something like that, where he talks about that and talks about uh, the effect of being confused by a song and, Mm. um, and, and how, how potent that is and how like most of his favorite songs, he has no idea what's being talked about. If anything, (laughs) it's like, yeah, there's, you know, obviously the person singing it needs to have, It needs there needs to be truth in it for them But I don't need to know what that is Mm -hmm. For it to work on me And work on me better Than a song that's like serving it up to me Yeah And obviously movies are the same way And even kids movies I think Especially like And and I think being confused In that sort of delicious way By art as an adult Makes you feel like a kid again too Because it just like Mm. Kind of you know You stop naming everything, you know, it's like, I don't know if that makes sense. No. Yeah, yeah,
1: totally.
0: I I think like, as you were saying that I was thinking of lyrics or, you know, something like the music of Interpol or something where, you know, I think that his lyrics are very evocative, but you never evocative of what you never really know what an Interpol song is about, but you get the collection of words gives you an image of something and then you're kind of left to tease out what it's about. And there's something yep. about in that that is like seeing a movie like Rockadoodle Doodle for the first time when you're young, and you like you don't know what Elvis's story is. You didn't know that he had a predatory manager who was the kind of person who would have a pool in the back of a li- limo. But you get what <laughs> those like collections of images imply in a way that gives you something to process, even if it doesn't fully make sense or spell it out in the, yes. the same way that I imagine. I haven't seen the Crudes. There's something like the tro- Trolls does, where they. <laughs> spend a lot of time literally saying what they are doing in the movie
1: over kind of, and over it's again. like eating already digested food like yeah. it's not a good experience you got, yeah, you need to be able to break it down yourself
2: god totally and there's and there's so much i mean especially in like the netflix realm right now that's doing that for adults it's just like mm-hmm. you know here's exactly what you should think about this yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> you know
1: that also bums me out you know going back to song lyrics of like you know, something like genius for, uh, annotating lyrics. I find it useful if there's maybe like a term that I don't know, uh, you know, something where I'm like, wait, what are they, what are they referring to? But then when people ascribe like a total meaning onto the whole song, I'm just like, no,
2: why? (laughs) It sucks. It's the same thing when you, you know, you had, you, you had a dream that felt so profound and strange and, and you tell it to someone and th- the minute you put words to it, it disappears as like a cool thing.
1: That's poor, poor Chris every morning, almost. Yes, I, I <laughs> the uh, yeah. So I have,
0: I have like a really good segue to, to maybe talk to you a little bit about uh, specifically about like Eve six and, and your music and stuff. But just before sure. I apply this segue, <laughs> any, any more thoughts about Rocket doodle,
2: you know, hard wreck uh, It's, it's, it's a great movie. Uh, whether you have kids or not, I think. And uh, yeah, and so are all of Bluth's movies and they're all similarly, pleasantly disjointed.
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think if you've mostly been watching, I don't know, like the old Disney movies on Disney Plus or something, it, it is a really good, because it feel they, the Bluth movies feel very different, a, a completely different strain of DNA from the, the Disney uh, yes, style. Yes, and
2: completely different strain of DNA, even from, It's contemporaries, you know, like um, not just from obviously the animated stuff coming out today, but movies, Disney movies coming out at the time. It's just, it's a, it's a different, different aesthetic.
3: Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. And the animation is a little like darker and grittier and in some places, like frankly, a little cheaper looking, but there are in all of his movies, at least some moments of just like beautiful animation. Like the way the sun looks when it's coming up. Yes in these in uh, Rockadoodle is like beautiful there's some really be- cool special effect shots honestly when he the kid gets transformed into a cat looks like crazy yeah. and really cool
2: and and that gritty sort of low fineness gives it a filmy quality yes. too mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah, it's cool all
0: right I'm gonna do my my transition right now and I hope this doesn't put you too much on a spot on the spot
2: max this is great
0: in the song Rescue off your 2000 album Horror Scope, you talk about uh, comparing a woman to Jessica Rabbit and an animated vixen. Jessica Rabbit, of course, notably from another film from around the same time that combines live action and animated characters. So I just am curious, is this a fixation for you? I can't believe you
2: just referenced a deep cut. <laughs> <clears throat> wow. <laughs> Um, that's really funny. I, just a couple days ago, we were like, why haven't we watched, uh, Framed frame Roger Rabbit with the girls and, um, something else went out. Um, I can't remember what it was. Oh, Groundhog Day, mm. which didn't keep their attention for very long. I feel <laughs> like the, maybe and, when they're like, ten got a little, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, hey, maybe. Maybe, <laughs> I need, maybe I need to take a look at this, you know?
1: We're uncovering something something new. <laughs> yeah, breakthrough.
0: <sighs> um, so, Molly, do you, do you want to kind of j- jump into some of this? Uh, yeah,
1: session? yeah. I I guess what I wanted to ask you first, just like looking a little into the, the Eve 6 lore, is that you were in high school when the band signed to a label, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's correct. We were... Uh, John, the guitar player, and I started playing together like end of freshman year. And oh my God,
1: freshman year of high school.
2: (laughs) Yeah. We didn't, we hadn't yet formed what would be the first incarnation of the band, but we were like jamming together, you know? And then um, by sophomore year, we were a band. We found a drummer and a recycler. We were calling ourselves Yaku. We were just playing like backyard parties and all that. A couple of all ages venues. And um, we played one of those all ages venues one one night. um, This place in Hollywood and an A&R person from uh, an independent label called Dr. Dream out of Orange County was there. And Dr. Dream had um, all of the bands, like lead singers (laughs) or bass players. From seminal Orange County punk bands of of like the '80s, they're new bands, so it, it was
1: oh my like, god,
2: <laughs> it was really funny. It was like Joe Wood from TSOL; his band was on there. I forget what they were called. I think a guy from DI. Um, <clears throat> it was that sort of thing. We started making a record with them that Steve Soto of The adolescence was producing. <clears throat> we recorded drums. And the label uh, had organized an, an interview with this, this show called Radio Asylum. It was like an independent syndicated radio thing. Mm-hmm. We uh, recorded like four live songs, full band for that, and did an interview and stuff. <clears throat> and the woman who, whose show it was really liked us, wanted to manage us. We were like, great. She knew uh, a, an a r person at RCA, sent him the tape. And he heard something, uh, which is mystifying to me. And, <laughs> and, and uh, he and another and our guy flew out, saw us do a showcase where we were terrible. I mean, I, honestly, I'm saying this like, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. Like our drummer dropped, I remember, dropped a stick in the middle of a song. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> it was that kind of thing. Um, but they signed us to a record deal that in practice looked more like a production deal because it was understood that we'd finish high school and uh keep writing and all of that stuff um but it was a record deal we did get an advance that for the time wasn't a lot but for us was insane mm-hmm. and uh we got that in monthly stipends Which which gave us work credit, which means we got to miss a period of school. Stop it. Yeah, Yeah, it was absurd, man. It was, you know.
1: So you have like someone at the label like signing like some school form that you hand in?
2: I forget exactly how that. No, you know what? I think we just had to bring uh, maybe we had to show them a check or something. Holy shit. Something like that. Uh, um, at, at the time
0: yeah. how did that feel to like be signed to a major label and still be like having to go to classes Were you just like completely peeved that you had to, to actually go through the motions of doing all that
2: um i think no i think part of me was probably relieved i mean i i, I don't know i uh i don't think we would have been ready for anything else really it was kind of cool like we just sort of continued doing our thing which was you know, playing after school every day and playing backyard parties and little all ages things and just sort of had our, you know, it it wasn't what you might think it was like, uh, uh, you know, I mean, we were like pretty level headed kids. Like I didn't start drinking until later. Like I was sober all throughout high school. Mm -hmm. Um, and we really just kind of did quote unquote work, you know, Mm -hmm. but, um, Yeah, it's definitely, definitely pretty unnatural. That's for sure.
1: I mean, the reason I bring up like that at the beginning is like we obviously read a ton of rock memoirs for the podcast and the hardest part and the part that it seems like almost impossible for a lot of artists to describe is the moment where you go from like playing music to like someone, you know, an adult basically being like, you're good, like, please become a business now all of a sudden. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say,
0: this is very interesting to us because that is the part that's like constantly yada yada over. It it seems like it's almost always like we're playing shows and getting some attention and then we had a record contract. It's like that middle part of being like all the stuff you're just saying about going to like showcases and like getting the small label A&R guy to pass you up to the big. Yeah. That's, it's very interesting for us to hear the, the nuts
2: and bolts of that. Uh, yeah. And it totally changes the game you're playing in so many ways. It goes from being, I mean, there are plenty of artists that, that are able to continue to keep it absolutely, um, pure and inspired. But, um, You know, I I mean, for for us, it wasn't even a case of like selling out or anything. We were just so goddamn green and inexperienced. Mm -hmm. We were just, you know, I was talking, I did an interview before this and, um, you know, I was just, he was asking me questions about it, my relationship to that music and stuff. And it's like, it it was so like that record and song were so guileless, like almost impossibly so um which is both i think why it was like a big hit and why obviously it makes me cringe as an adult um hearing it like like 17 year old me reading a you know bad diary entry as opposed to a good 17 year old diary entry <laughs> right right <laughs> um you know what i'm realizing i should have done is gotten you guys this this new record, the new EP that, um, the single comes out on, on Friday. And, uh, it's when we're done with this, I'll, I'll shoot it over. Yeah.
0: Great. I'm going to be, I'll be editing this, uh, the over the next few days. This will probably come out early next week. So I'd be happy. I'd be pleased to play a, a some, a track from that.
2: Uh, oh, that would be sick at the end. I guess when I start
0: thinking about talking to you, I, one of the things that popped into my, uh, head first was the idea of the phrase, uh, alt rock um yeah. and i was just kind of wondering like what you guys <laughs> thought of yourselves at the time and like what i mean honestly what, what kind of music were you listening to what were you uh, pulling from and and you know when you guys popped when you got big like where where you felt you were in the, in the ecosystem of rock at the time
2: yeah it, it it it's a really good question and whenever i tell people what i was actually listening to during those years, which were basically the high school years when I was writing those songs and stuff. Um, and then juxtapose that with the product of the record and sort of what happened when you put these three teenagers into a recording studio with a major label budget and and an experienced producer who was pressured to get a result that would be big on the radio. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, for me, my like eye opening uh, musical experience was being uh, when I was in seventh grade of the summer after um, I went to skateboarding camp in Visalia. Hell yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, And got uh, turned on to the Dead Kennedys for the first time and others and so that that began my just total obsession with with underground music that evolved from i mean i was always interested interested in stuff that had some some song craft i i never i had a brief sort of like minor threat phase but um Mm -hmm. you know i always was attracted to to lyric and melody but but um but just the honesty and visceral nature, the attitude of uh, of punk rock and its kind of like attendant genres, I guess. Like, um, but so I would just go by record label. I mean, I for you know, mm. star alternative tentacles, um, and then you know, kill rock stars. K. I would just buy everything. I would order vinyl from the catalogs. Um, uh, huge Jawbreaker fan. Um, that's like actually one influence that I can sort of hear in some lyrics, not musically, but of um, some of the early deep Six stuff, which is kind of funny. Yeah, and then I was also, of course, listening to the radio and pretending not to like it.
1: You
2: know? <laughs> <laughs> that's what you got to do um, so in that, high
0: school, and then growing up is all yeah. about realizing that there are good songs on the radio.
2: It, it, exactly, exactly. So I think... It was sort of a mix of those things. And then, you know, gro- growing up, um, like my, my first memory of being moved by music, like in a meaningful way was when Running Down a Dream came on the radio when I was like eight or nine, I want to say um, something like that. The Petty, Petty solo song mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, going back to what we were talking about earlier about like just music being magic like it really was it was like I still remember the buzzing feeling that I had listening to that song it was like this is taking me this is putting me somewhere else entirely mm-hmm. so he's probably been the most consistent musical through line for me I don't know if I call, call him an influence but just as a fan and specifically the solo records which drives people insane <laughs> but um, <laughs> But I prefer the solo records. I like that really controlled Jeff Wynn production, and I love the Rick Rubin record.
1: Yep, I'm a I'm a big Petty fan as well. Cool. Yeah, that was that's that was a um like maybe one of my only regrets of being like, oh, he's he's playing at Forest Hills like this summer. Ah, no, I'm like kind of busy, and I don't know whatever. And then like he was dead the next year.
2: You know, I did that with Tom Petty like until. His second to last show, I Fuck. got tickets and went at the Greek. Holy shit! And, uh, yeah, yeah. And then he played the next night, and I think died after that show, or or like that night or the next day. I mean, it was fucking crazy.
1: That's wild.
0: Oh, well, I'm glad you got to see him.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, I have maybe a sort of a follow up to the alt rock question, which is like, you know, you you've still been playing, uh. And we were oh, just on i I'm, a- I'm
2: sorry. I didn't answer the alt-rock question. Oh, yeah. Because I, I did think... Um, I, we've always just really, like, laughed at and mocked that term. <laughs> it's, so, it's just so funny. Like, and we did have this bit about, like, going into the record store and asking them where their alt-rock section is. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like, what does it mean? And especially... Uh, I mean, because it's ridiculous on so many levels, because alternative music was a a thing that was actually an alternative to pop culture Mm -hmm. um, in the beginning. And then, of course, became, uh, you know, commercialized and every, you know, then clear channel station is calling itself alternative.
0: I was thinking about that, how it's like impossible to find (laughs) You can find a classic rock station and you can find an alternative rock station, but you can't find... A rock station, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah, right. You can't just have a rock station. Yeah, it. Um, I, one of the and one of the things that makes it ridiculous, but that I I also have sort of a nostalgic pull for, uh, like fondness for, is the fact that it, those like the '90s, and even especially maybe into the mid to late, like the sound of alternative rock or alt rock or alt music was so insanely varied as to mm. encompass fat boy slim and sarah mclaughlin and <laughs> yeah. prodigy and uh pick your guitar band like um which i do think was was cool i feel like now at least um i mean i don't know who listens to the radio anymore but that's not even a like useful metric but it seems like (laughs) seems like songs that um do get to be big on um in the commercial sense you know you have to pick a very specific defined lane and like commit to that or Mm -hmm. or nothing's happening yeah you know
1: yeah i mean and i'm not talking
2: about bands that do it and have make great records and have live careers and operate outside of that machine, that's a totally different thing.
3: Yeah.
1: Once you were in the machine, where you know, having a hit record, do you feel like, did you want to like get out of it? Or were you like, can I, I want to do what I am doing now that I'm here in the mainstream, basically?
2: I've never told, I mean, I've talked to friends about this, but I, <laughs> Never publicly said it because it's so embarrassing, but, um, I was so miserable, like at the height of the heyday mm-hmm. for my band. Um, I remember fantasizing about working at the hardware store because there was a hardware store <clears throat> near my apartment and the guys in the hardware store were so cool and so nice. And they got to go to that hardware store every day and, and, And I remember uh, the night before uh, or soon before I had to leave for like a pretty long run um, walking around at night with my friend and just uncontrollably crying because I, I just couldn't do it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go out. I just wanted to work at a fucking hardware store.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. I mean that, that ascent from, I think e- even people who are like fully adults, getting on the track of like pop rock stardom is one thing, but like going from high school to that, see, like, I mean, we talk all the time on the on the pod, especially when we're talking about people who started as kids, basically is like you're a worker. like the mi- the minute you like sign a contract, like you're a worker, and it doesn't make a lot of sense, like emotionally or spiritually to like be that hard of a worker when you're like 17, 18, 19 years old.
2: Totally. And, and completely, completely. And also being that young, not really having the tools for, I kind of, the term I kind of hate, but you know what I mean Mm -hmm. to like, to like uh, stay fixed to your North star or even really know what that is. It Mm -hmm. was like, I, I, I just got sort of um, pulled in so many different directions, and um, and and was too young and maybe too scared or whatever else to sort of like walk that back. Um, and yeah, I mean, when you are like, you know, you said part of this machine, uh, and there are a lot of people who are, you know, commissioning your shows and your everything and, um, relying on you and they're powerful people. Um, and then there's just, you know, your the other members in your band and your crew and stuff like that. Um, you, you really can pretty easily lose your, your sense of autonomy and, uh, just kind of get, get taken by it. And mm-hmm. I, you know, whenever I talk about this, it makes it sounds like I, I have, you know, take only a negative view on, on all of that. And of course I don't like, there was so much, there's so much I'm grateful for about it. And there was a lot of fun and excitement as, as well, but it was also awfully confusing and not great for, um, (laughs) my mental health and uh addictive personality and all of those predictable things
0: i guess just a question about the positive parts of parts of it because it sounds like you know you you take songwriting you know fairly seriously i mean during those times and i guess a through line to today like did your relationship with actually having to sit down and write a song in the sense that you know as soon as you get signed and certainly as soon as you have a hit album the songs are not just like an artistic expression, but like a product that needs to be crafted uh, yeah. with the goal of like repeating a certain kind of success or in a certain form. Um, so I was just wondering what your relationship to that like part of the craft, which is both personal and then also, you know, commercial. Uh, yeah. How that changed during that the, the high times and you say you have an EP coming out. Like how how's that feeling, you know, as time went on?
2: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, the first record was really written... Sort of in a vacuum. It, well, there wasn't, there wasn't, we didn't have a record deal when we wrote that material for the most part. Um, we were just a young band playing uh, for literally the fun of it. Nothing, nothing, no other reason. <clears throat> so um, yeah, it, it really was just, you know, uh, adolescent angsty expression um, and, and it felt good to do. Um,
0: I mean, not to tangent so, too much, but you know, recently on Twitter, you've been you say kind of tossing off like, "Do you know the Heart and a Blender song?" Which is is funny because you know, it's very flippant about you know your own biggest hit that you wrote when you were very young. But you know, at the time, I'm sure that that felt serious in, in a way.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> no, absolutely. And and I and I also knew after I'd written that that there was something there. Like I remember going to. School the next day and telling John, what I call sweet P, Michael Carter, saying, I think I wrote a song that could be on the radio. <laughs> 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 my stomach turns and I exhale. I would swallow
3: my pride, I would choke on the rhymes, but the lack they're all on the inside. I would swallow my doubt, turn it inside. I'll find nothing but faith and nothing. my tender.
2: But yeah, I, I think and then as it progressed, um, I mean, I think over the course of those three albums, uh 98, 2000 and oh three, I, I always enjoyed um the the initial creative burst burst of of coming up with a song. What I didn't enjoy was taking it into the studio and having it sort of like um ripped apart and you know criticized whatever all, all of all of that stuff and and sort of lo- losing losing its oftentimes losing its uh its sort of inspiration again not every time like mm-hmm. uh there's there there are eve six songs that i listen to and i say that's you know that's good you know uh, um,
1: Molly Molly had a question about about this Wait what I don't, I don't know what, which question you're referring to in my mind. The, I'll just ask uh, yeah. <laughs> it. yeah
0: along those lines, uh, is there are there maybe some of E6 songs that you wish were the big radio hits r- or uh, oh yeah, rather than uh, maybe the ones that ended up being that?
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, uh, there's a song called Amphetamines from the 2nd Eve E6 record that's just kind of a dumb pop punk ish song. Um, but it's a good one, I think.
3: A a
2: song called Open Road Song from the first record, which I'm i I'm I'm proud of the writing of that song. Like for um, looking at it with you know the same distance that I look at like the Heart and a Blender song, <laughs> <laughs> like Open Road song has something something special um, about it. Yeah, God, it's been so long since I've like listened to Eve Six music, so I, I don't or played it honestly, I, I honestly, I it. sat
0: down today and listened to Horoscope all the way through, which is how I got that rescue, uh, uh, pool. Um, and yeah. I'm not to smoke. It's a great, a great record. A lot of great tunes on this. I like the electronic production f- flourishes on that on that one a lot. Thank
2: you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, there, there are some good tunes on that
0: one. And the other thing I was thinking, you know, I was getting ready to talk to you and looking at this record is that the the cover of Eve Six's Horoscope. It brings me back as like a, like a perfect sense memory to being in an FYE in the mall yeah. in like early 2000s. It's like yeah. this record and then the this, the Strokes first record are the two record covers that when I think of that space, I'm like seeing on the walls there.
2: And it was yeah, just funny. Yeah, totally. And that would have been, that Strokes record would have been just the year after that.
3: Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah,
0: with the, uh, the Hadron Collider doodly-doos on it. Yeah. Um. It, so it was it was fun to sit down and, and like <laughs> actually think about this today. So,
2: and, that's cool. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. I and now I'm kicking myself for not getting you guys the new record because it's it's pretty wild. Well, what what? Tell tell me about the new record.
0: <laughs> so what's on the new one? Is this the most your most personal record yet?
2: <laughs> very very um, uh, radio
1: DJ <laughs> vibes, Chris. I'm feeling yeah. it. Well, I feel like we're there.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um we we recorded it at the end wrote and recorded it at the end of 2019 um john and i were just like why don't we just do something like dude why don't we just do something and like who cares like let's make the roots punk record we've always wanted to make let you know who cares if anyone likes it um uh, and i was like yeah like well let's do that so um that's what we did. We, we did it really quickly. Five songs. Um, we're, we're calling it grim value. It's, uh, nice. all of the songs were written, uh, and, and recorded in, in the same day. So like just real quick, like um, each,
0: each song was written and recorded in one day or you did all five. Exactly. In one Not the whole thing. Okay.
2: Not all five. Yeah. So, uh, w- which for us, for John and I is like, we suffered for many years in this purgatory, um, where we had <laughs> uh, someone that we were involved with who who was a uh, an overthinker to to the degree that it was just a, a complete like uh, impediment to creativity or fun or anything else. And so that 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 part was was really fun but um yeah it's kind of there's kind of like a 70s late 70s early 80s punk vibe to it um kind of the generation x billy idol sure a little bit going on um yeah i'm having fun lyrically like i wrote my first what i think is my first love song it's called i want to bite your face (laughs) (laughs) great title great title thank you thank you um it's pretty macabre, but it's uh but it's also like um heartfelt. And um yeah, the first single is called Black Nova and it comes out Friday um and will be like K Rock the radio station that's out here is doing a doing like a little um premiere thing with an interview and a couple acoustic songs that we did, one one of which is a fountains of wine song nice. um cool. on night.
0: Uh, Great, awesome. well, we'll play, you know, send us some of those MP3s and we'll throw them at the end of this episode and also put in a link to where you can find the album.
1: I've, awesome. I have one more relevant, our, our pod relevant question, which is, you know, I don't want to harp too much on your tweets, but you, you do good tweets. It's like right in the vernacular. Have you thought about writing a book? Because I feel like the, the rock memoir from the like turn of the millennium, like that, that whole area is kind of weak on, uh, rock memoirs. And I feel like there's maybe some, some space there.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And, uh, I, I hadn't thought about it until the guy who wrote, um, this John Lennon book. That's like, uh, what's it called? Last days of Lennon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Um, that's, been on the bestseller list, like hit me up on Twitter and was like, you, you, you need to write a book. Uh, and, um, and I think I just like liked the tweet and he was like, no, seriously, (laughs) you you need to write a book. I'll do it with you. Um, and, uh, so I've talked to him. I also talked to someone else who, um, who's who's a journalist at spin who, who like, has some ideas my uh but but i think the reason why like exactly exactly what you just said like it's such uh boring predictable at least in recent years it's like a genre that mm. um i wouldn't want to do it unless it wasn't that and so I've i've even been thinking about like weird ways to fuck up the 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 craft a little bit like even even doing even even having like the true life stop at a point and then extrapolating out weird fiction I don't know
0: I love Um, that (laughs) well just as words of encouragement uh you know we've been doing this this rock memoirs or music memoirs pod for a while and and your era is uh kind of undercovered yeah yeah for us personally we would like to know more. Yeah, uh, I
2: appreciate that. Just
0: one more question about the the tweets, and not you know, not to be too leading with it, but um, you know, no I mentioned the uh, the hard and the blender joke. Does a little bit of the like having fun tweeting, kind of taking the piss out of your own band's presence, does it feel like taking a little bit of that era back and being able to make fun of it in a way? You know, yeah. just as a way to decompress. You know <laughs> that sudden extreme popularity and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, so much. Uh so much. I mean it's like I I I think I don't think I'm overstating it when I say like I think it's been almost kind of healing in a way because <laughs> yeah, I'm doing I'm just doing this like rigorous honesty thing. I I I've likened it to to Dudley Moore's character and Crazy People where it's like all of a sudden just like um you know, is it, is it true? Is it funny? You know, if it meets that uh, Mm. criteria, push it out. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's been uh, it's been really fun and, and satisfying to um, (laughs) and I feel like a little bit, a a little bit more sort of uh, understood or something like being able Mm -hmm. to dismantle it. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. I mean people have really enjoyed it. I mean, it's uh I honestly like <laughs> to be to be completely honest, I kind of heard like ah, oh, you heard the Eve 6 guys popping off on Twitter. I'm like, "Oh, okay, whatever." And then like we got connected yeah on through that person who linked us together, and then I was actually like going back and I was like, "Oh, damn, these are really funny." Uh so <laughs> we we're, we're enjoying having you here on you. on on twitter.com. Uh what well, one more time what's the name of the new record i'll do like a real official radio guy sign off
2: cool it's called grim value
0: well the name of the movie is Rockadoodle. doodle <laughs> and the name of the new album is grim value uh thanks for stopping by max from eve six uh if you do a book come back and promote it with us we'd love to talk to you
2: again please thank you guys so much for having me it's been really fun